0: Today we're going to talk about the Noble Eightfold Path. I'm sure that many of you or all of you are familiar with the Noble Eightfold Path. The first one is Right View. I talked about Right View the other day. And followed by Right Thought. And both of these are classified under Panya or Wisdom. Then we have Right Speech, Right Action and Right Livelihood. These three are classified under Sila or Morality. The next group is Right Effort, Right Mindfulness, and Right Composure, and these are classified under Samadhi. We have Panya, Sila, and Samadhi. I already gave you quite an elaborate description or explanation of what is Right View, it's basically belief in causality, There is initial Right View something which you have not verified yet, you just believe in it. We talked about four types of causality. One is the physical law of cause and effect. Then we have the moral law of cause and effect. Thirdly, the mind-body law of cause and effect. And fourthly, we have the cause and effect found in the Four Noble Truths. Out of those four types, actually only two are personally verifiable, the last two. The mind-body law of cause and effect and the law of cause and effect found in the Four Noble Truths. The first one, the physical law of cause and effect, is verifiable only through instruments, not through personal verification. Instruments and formulas. The second Moral law of cause and effect, a law of karma, can only be verified by those who are highly attained. Otherwise, for most people, it's just a belief. The personal verification of causality has been emphasized by me. I've been telling you all to incline a mind to see cause and conditioning in as many. Of your thoughts, ideas, views, comments, judgments, decisions, and so forth as possible. Another verification is that of the Four Noble Truths. You understand the Four Noble Truths, which is the first diet that was mentioned by the Buddha in Doyata Nupasana Sutta that we talked about last night. The four Noble Truths are, first, suffering, the second is the cause of suffering, the third is the cessation of suffering, and the fourth is the way to cease suffering. The Buddha, in his first sermon, called the Dhamma Chaka Sutta, the discourse on the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, he said that the first Noble Truth of suffering is to be fully comprehended, which means to say, when you encounter suffering, don't run away from it, confront it, and understand it completely. Most people, when they meet suffering, they run away. They indulge in various forms of escapism, for example, If you're not a Buddhist, and you encounter suffering, mundane, worldly suffering like depression, disappointment, frustration. Then what do you do? You distract your mind's attention by drinking, for example, getting drunk and not thinking of the problem. Or you go enjoy yourselves, go to the casino, go out with your friends. Some people, they indulge in eating a lot. Some people, they indulge in working, workaholics. They work until they forget their problems. That's one way of avoiding instead of confronting suffering. The Buddha says, don't do that. You should try to confront suffering to fully understand it. And then the cause of suffering, which is craving, attachment, desire, is to be abandoned. The cessation of suffering is to be realized. And finally, the way to cease suffering is to be developed. This way to develop suffering is none other than a no wayful path. In order to be able to confront or understand suffering, you have to develop the noble ethical path. Otherwise, it's easier said than done. Don't run away from your depression. Don't run away from your frustrations. Don't run away from your problems. How can you not run away when you cannot solve it? For most people, is escapism. Like I can tell you, for some people, when they are stressed, they cannot resolve a problem. What do they do? More fit people, what they do is they will go for some physical activity go mountaineering go for a swim go for a workout go for a jog whatever something that will force you to be in the present moment and when you are in the present moment then you have no time to think of your problems that's another way of escapism it's also one way of getting some relief for your mind and after that come back home they are more refreshed and probably they are more composed to be able to confront the problem however Maybe that's only for it, not really getting to the root cause of the problem. In order to fully comprehend suffering, you have to walk the noble evil path. And when you fully comprehend suffering, it means that you understand what it is, what it feels like to suffer, and you also understand its cause. What is the main cause of suffering? We saw yesterday in Dwayata Nupasana Sutta that you can look at it from so many different angles. Following these noble truths, the cause of suffering is craving, desire. But you can also look at it from acquisition. You can look at it from nutriment. You can look at it from ignorance, from volition, from vinyana, from many different angles. When you fully understand suffering and you understand its cause, then what happens? The moment you really understand the cause of suffering, you abandon the cause. That means you cut off the craving, the attachment, the acquisition, the ignorance. Some of you may have seen that there are many issues in your life, which are long-standing, which have not yet been resolved. Personal issues, psychological issues, emotional issues. Relationship issues and that suffering, and you know that it's because of attachment. You know it's because of desire, and yet the suffering is still there. Why? Because you only know intellectually. You have not penetrated it deeply enough with wisdom. When wisdom really penetrates into that, then you will drop the attachment, and when the attachment is dropped then immediately the suffering is gone. Like I said last night, if you have this unrealistic expectation of someone to behave in a certain way, and you have been staying with that person for years, and still you hold on to that unrealistic expectation, then one fine day you realize, after you keep on looking at this, every time you suffer, every time he or she does not meet up with your expectations, then one fine day you find out that Why is it so stupid? It's just because I'm holding on to this unrealistic expectation. What if I just accept that person for what it is and lower my own standards and not hold on and be attached to my own standards, then everything is off. No problem. You can tell people to let go. That can be understood intellectually. But you can only let go when there is wisdom. And wisdom understands the cause of suffering is attachment. Right thought. Right thought is that of renouncing sense pleasures. When you're a yogi, it's not so bad because you're on a precepts, you don't have your handphones, no opportunity to watch YouTube, and you have no opportunity to get distracted by Facebook and your messages. Renouncing sense pleasures as a yogi is not bad. It's just that you have a few more sense pleasures that you may not be able to renounce, like food, That's the only sense pleasure available to you. (laughs) And also having a nice place to stay and sleep to escape the heat. I'm sure that many of you, when you come for interview in the aircon room in the afternoon, enjoy yourself. (laughs) What a relief from the sweltering heat from the outside. (laughs) You know, sense pleasures is not that easy. Once you go back to the world, once you get back your handphone, finish. Walking in the Noble Vopal, it's not that easy. <laughs> <laughs> when people translate this, Nekama, Nekama Sankapa is renunciation. People think of becoming monks and nuns. But it's not necessarily so. It's just renouncing sense pleasures. Whether you are a monk or a nun, you can still be attached to sense pleasures, whatever that you are allowed to. Then, of non-ill will, the opposite of which is loving kindness, you should have thoughts of non will and then thoughts of non-cruelty, which is expressed positively as compassion. People tend to think that will and cruelty are only ab- applicable to external or animate or inanimate objects, usually animate objects. But really, it can also apply to yourself. You can have a lot of will for yourself particularly if you're someone who has an angry temperament, who always looks at the negative sides of things, and who is also a perfectionist, and you don't like yourself because you made so many mistakes in the past. You don't live up to your unrealistic standards. That's ill will. Ill will towards yourself. And then some people, they are very cruel towards themselves too. Sometimes when you accidentally knock yourself at the door, then you get so angry and then you kick the door and hurt yourself again. <laughs> That's also cruelty, isn't it? Some people, you know what they do when they go and collect their food and then they take too much. They cannot finish it. They say, I must punish myself for being so greedy. I must eat everything and then suffer for it. That's also cruelty. Some people, it's not because of cruelty, but because of attachment. Attachment to the idea that you should not waste, and you should take everything. You can see, all these attachments can cause you suffering too. If you attach to the idea that you should not waste, but still, the stomach is already full, and you force it in, you're wasting anyway, it's going to come out the other way. (laughs) The body is not going to absorb it. If it's too much food, then what happens is it becomes toxins. And you are being cruel to yourself. Don't cling on to your ideals or ideas which are no longer valid, no longer relevant according to the situation. If you look carefully at your mind, you will see that a lot of your habitual actions and reactions are all conditioned by the past, the way you were brought up, the way you were taught by your teachers, the way you were influenced by your peers, by the media, and so forth. Unless you are able to see all these causes and conditioning behind your actions, behind your behavior, you will not be able to be liberated from slavery to them. Only when you are able to identify this and you want to change for the better, then only you can decondition or deprogram all these past conditioning. Right thought means not only having these thoughts towards others but to yourself as well. Right speech is not lying, refraining from divisive speech. Divisive speech means if you know that some people are very harmonious, and they get along with one another, but you feel jealous, or for some other reason, you don't like to see them in harmony. And you go around and spread some divisive words. You go to A," and you say "B said this about you," in order to split them. Sometimes it's an untruth. Sometimes it's a truth. You say the truth, but your intent is to divide. If you say an untruth, you get multiple. One is you are telling a lie, and secondly is you are guilty of divisive speech. And harsh speech. Harsh speech here, if you want to interpret it more vigorously, in a more refined way, it does not only mean using crude language or vulgar language, but it could mean saying things very sarcastically in order to hurt another person and purposely saying things in a way that you know will hurt the other person. And people who are very close to one another, especially spouses and partners, love to do that. (laughs) Somehow, I don't know what sort of satisfaction they get from doing that. Gossip. Refraining from frivolous speech. That's not easy because this is refraining from... Getting involved in conversations that have no spiritual or worldly benefit. Sometimes people do that. They just get together and speak just because they want to speak. Especially a lot of elderly men, they will go to the coffee shop and they will sit over the coffee and they start to criticize the Prime Minister and criticize who and who and say, we should do this and should this. That's frivolous speech because it's nothing beneficial, there's nothing you can do. So you're just making all these comments to boost your own ego. <laughs> right action not taking life, not taking what is not given, this is obvious, not committing sexual misconduct, but here it means actually not having sex outside your marital relationship. Then, right livelihood. Right livelihood is something that is ethical, that does not break your precepts, and that is also not harmful. And then right effort. I talked about right effort the other day. It is a desire or effort to abandon arisen unskillful states. It is defined as desire. You could say that not all desires are bad. But all desires, whether they are wholesome or unwholesome, are the cause of suffering. Supposing you have this desire to abandon a arisen unskillful states, but that for some reason or other you cannot abandon it, then you feel very angry with yourself. Isn't that suffering? <laughs> because you have this desire to do something and you cannot get what you want. All forms of desire. Even you have this desire to come for a retreat and you already told your boss, Several months ago you want to book this period for your retreat and you were looking forward to it so badly. And then a week before you take your leave, the boss says, Sorry, cannot approve your leave. You have an urgent project to undertake. How would you feel? You suffer, right? Disappointment because you have this expectation. That's desire too, it's wholesome desire. Another good example is you have a good sitting. And then after that, you get up feeling very light as though you're floating in the air, mind very composed, and you quickly have your lunch, and then you come back to sit having the desire to re-experience that wonderful, hard-to-get experience. Will you get it? You won't. And then you're going to suffer because you don't get it. It's also the desire or effort made to prevent unarisen, unskillful states from arising. The second pair is desire to arouse unarisen, skillful states and the desire or effort to maintain and develop arisen, skillful states. When it comes to the question of self-responsibility, which seems to contradict with anatta, Because if there's no one there, no self, everything is due to cause and condition, then who is responsible for the actions? Like I pointed out the other day, you may be aware of all these causes and conditions that give rise to unwholesome action, unwholesome intentions. And you can say that it's not mine, not me, and you don't blame yourself for it. But once you recognize that it's unwholesome, then you should have right effort to abandon it. And also... When you have this right effort to abandon that unwholesome mental state, that's really the effort to arouse skillful states. And skillful states include mindfulness, spiritual mindfulness, the mindfulness that reminds you to walk the nobleful path. Come to the right mindfulness, which is inevitably, or every place in the suttas consistently defined as the four establishments of mindfulness. And they are contemplation of body, contemplation of feelings, contemplation of mental states, and contemplation of Dhammas. In Pali, it's Kaya Nupasana, Vedana Nupasana, Chitta and Dhamma Nupasana. Actually, the word contemplation can be very misleading because when you say contemplate in English, it means that you are thinking about it, reflecting about it. When I was preparing for my Sri Sutta Siddhi with Meditation workshop many years ago, I was contemplating whether to translate it as contemplation or as observation because the Pali word is. Anupasana. Pasana means to see, to observe. And Vipasana, to see distinctly. V is distinct, Pasana is see, distinct seeing. And so Anupasana should be repeated seeing, repeated observation of body in the body, feelings in feelings, mental states in mental states, tamas in tamas. Finally, I decided to translate it as contemplation. Although, It does not really jive with the actual Pali. Why? Because in the Sadi Sutta, under Kayana Basana, under the contemplation of body, there are 14 exercises. And some of them requires not just observation, but it requires reflection. Like for example, when instructions are given to Reflect on the 31 parts of the body. The Pali word used is not Anupasana. The word used is which means to reflect. To reflect that this whole body consists of just these 31 parts. And these are supposed to be seen from the view of repulsiveness. Disgusting. And then there's also another one which talks about The four elements, same. We use the word reflect rather than observe. And finally, the last one is the nine symmetry contemplations. These also, he says, he also reflects on these corpses on various stages of decay in the channel ground and applies it to himself as though he also will experience this. These are all contemplations. That's why I decided to use the word contemplation. Because contemplation can also mean to look back at something. However, now on second thoughts, maybe it should be translated as repeated observation instead of contemplation. Why? Because I believe, and some modern scholars also have a similar conclusion, then the satipatthana Sutta as we have it now, either in the Majjhima Nikaya or in the Digha Nikaya, is actually a composite. It was not the original teaching of the Buddha. It was it's a composite of various suttas, various extracts from different suttas. When you look in the satipatthana Patana in the discourses connected with the four establishments of mindfulness, you will see that there is nothing mentioned about these 14 exercises. In fact, there is no elaboration at all about what is Kaya Nupasana, what is Jitta Nupasana, what is Vedana Nupasana, what is Dhamma Nupasana. Just very general principles of saying the typical stop phrase that I recited to you the other day. Here, monks, how does a monk practice the four Satipatthanas? Or what are the four Satipatthanas? Here among is repeatedly observing the body in the body, ardent, clearly aware, mindful, having subdued or abandoned longing and dejection in regard to the world, and we repeats that for feelings, for mind and for dhammas. If you look at it in this way without considering all the details of Kaya the 14 exercises, it is not about thinking, it is not about reflection, but it is about observation. You observe the body as the body. You observe feelings as feelings. You observe mind as mind. You observe tamas as tamas. Body is not feeling. Feeling is not body. Body is not citta. Jitta is not a body. And then it is not I, not mine, not myself. When you want to look at Sathipatthana in that way, then it's very simple. It's not as complicated as going through all the 14 exercises. And I also pointed out the other day that although clear awareness, Sambhajanya, is classified as one of the exercises in Gaya Nupasana, in the stock phrase describing satipatthana, it applies to all the four establishments of mindfulness, not just confined to Kaya Nupasana. And secondly, another thing is, is very glaring, is that under Kaya Nupasana, the first exercise is Anapanasati, watching the breath. When you look at Anapanasati Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Buddha says that when you practice Anapanasati, you are also practicing the four establishments of mindfulness. But in the four Siddhi Patanas, Anapana is only found in Kaya Nupasana, it is not found in Vedana Nupasana, it is not found in Jita Nupasana, it is not found in Dhamma Nupasana. There seems to be some sort of inconsistency. Anyway, if we want to look at the four establishments of mindfulness in a very rudimentary way, it is simply Repeated observation of the body as body. Repeated observation of feelings as feelings, mental states as mental states, and dhammas as dhammas. Dhammas means anything. Anything which is not body, feelings, mental states. And this anything could include not just the five hindrances, the seven factors of enlightenment, not only the six senses, but all the things that happen, all the sankharas. This is the fourth establishment of mindfulness seen in a very rudimentary way. If you are familiar with the Patana Sutta, at the end of each exercise, there is also a refrain. A refrain means like a chorus, which is repeated at the end of each exercise. Which says that, so thus, a monk dwells contemplating the body in a body, internally or externally, both internally and externally. Then he contemplates the origination factors and the dissolution factors of the body and so forth. This seems to be very mechanical as it is appended to each of the exercises. However, there are two suttas in the Sadipatana Patanasa One is called the Samudhya Sutta which is about origination. We talked about this, that the Sathipatthanas should be developed in order to see the arising and the dissolution of each of them, each of the objects of Sathipatthana. And then there is another sutta that's called Vibhanga Sutta, which talks about looking at developing the four Sathipatthanas Internally or externally, and then both internally and externally. These two are found. This is found in the Sali but they are separate suttas. As I said, the Sali Sutta that we have is a composite of different suttas. They take from here, take from there, piece them all together. Now we talk about right composure. Right composure is defined in some suttas. If you do some research, you will find that there are four suitors. There is one placement of mind supported by the seven factors of the noble footpath. path. Four suitors say that. There are four suitors which say that recomposure is one placement of mind supported by the above factors of the noble wilful path. And there are four other suitors which say that recomposure means the four jhanas. If you want to strike a compromise, then it is one placement of mine, Ikagata, then it must be at the jhanic level. And if it is any of the four jhanas, then the jhanas must be supported by the other factors. There are various interpretations of jhanas. Some people say they are the Sutta jhanas, and some people say they are the Visuddhimagga jhanas. The Musuddhimagha jhanas is understood to be an absorption, a mental absorption whereby you are absorbed in one single object and then your senses are cut off. You are totally unaware of what is happening. That sort of jhana could be done by anyone, not necessarily a Buddhist. I mean, you can do that without any right view or any of the factors of the noble path. You just have to concentrate on an object and get absorbed. People can get this sort of jhana very easily, actually. For example, I have one of our devotees here. He can get very easily absorbed in the TV. <laughs> he gets so absorbed in the TV that when the wife calls him, he also cannot hear. And I'm sure that many of you have also experienced this. You are so absorbed in your computer that you lose track of all time and people call you so you do not where. And that doesn't need you to have any of the factors of the noble four <laughs> path. If you get that sort of jhana, that's not right samadhi. If it's right samadhi, then you must have all the other path factors supporting it. Let's look at the jhanas. The first jhana is described in the suttas as, number one, it is quite secluded from sensual desires. When you're practicing open awareness and you're busy keeping track of what's happening at the senses. Are you thinking of any sensual pleasures? Are you thinking of chocolate or ice cream, or any video, YouTube, that you're missing? No. This is one factor of the first jhana, is that you are secluded from sensual desires. And you're also secluded from unwholesome states. At that time, there's no anger, there's no aversion, There is no liking or disliking. If there is, that means you are not there yet. Thirdly, there is initial and sustained thinking or application. This is vitaka vichara. Vitaka can be translated as initial thinking or initial application, depending on how you look at it and depending on how you interpret jhana. For those who interpret jhana as absorption, then it is initial application. It is the initial application of the mind to an object. You have to intentionally direct your mind to an object and you need also your willpower and volition to sustain it there. For people who translate dittaka and vichara as thinking, then it is initial thought that arises in respect of what you are practicing. And these thoughts are not connected with any of the sense pleasures. It's probably connected with how to practice. How do I keep my mind here? How do I put my mind in space without focusing on anything, keeping it defocused? How do I put the mind there so that it doesn't go out of the objects but the objects come to it? You might have such thoughts. But these are not connected with the sense pleasures. And these are not associated with unwholesome states. So that could be interpreted as initial thinking. And sustained thinking in the sense of telling yourself to stay there and not run off. The next important thing is with interest and happiness born of seclusion. That is another factor of the first jhana. With interest means you are not bored. You are deeply interested in your object of meditation. You are interested and you don't feel bored at all. It is born of seclusion in the sense that you are secluded from sensual desires. You have no desire for any pleasures of the senses. So that is the first jhana. The second jhana is without initial and sustained thinking or application. It is like now is free flow. It becomes automatic. You don't need to put any effort on it. It is effortless. The mind just... It just glides along, and things just comes and goes, and you don't need to put any effort to maintain that sort of awareness. Then the mind becomes clear, and there is oneness of mind. Remember we talked about oneness the other day? This oneness of mind is that the mind stays in one place and doesn't run all over the place. And that's when the objects come to the mind rather than the mind going up to the objects, when you're practicing open awareness. And here... There is still interest and happiness, but it is born of composure. The other one was born out of seclusion from sense pleasures. This one was born out of composure. The third jhana is detached from interest, which means to say there is no more pity, no more rapture, no more that sort of deep interest, because the mind has become equanimous. It does not have any preferences or likes or dislikes. Anything that comes is okay. And the mind is mindful and clearly aware of what's happening. And then there's also mental happiness. The earlier one in the second jhana is both mental and physical happiness. But this one, the physical happiness has disappeared and there's only mental happiness. Physical happiness means comfort of the body. It doesn't mean that the body becomes uncomfortable but it's just that the mind is now more mental space than with the body. The fourth jhana is without bodily or mental pain or pleasure and it has just equanimity. It's mindfulness purified by equanimity. If we look at these descriptions of the jhanas, you see that mindfulness is mentioned only in the third and the fourth jhana. But then, without mindfulness, you cannot get even the first jhana. <sighs> How come it's mentioned only in the third and fourth jhana? It's because they become very pronounced at that time. But they were already there from the very beginning. But they become very pronounced there. And it seems that in the fourth jhana, because of equanimity, then mindfulness has reached its peak the most stable and highest form of mindfulness when one reaches the fourth jhana. In the suttas, this noble evil path is usually explained as a linear development. When you have right view, then it seems that it will lead to right thought and when you have right thought, that will lead to right speech, and when you have right speech, that will lead to right action, and when you have right action, that will lead to right livelihood, and right livelihood will lead to right effort, and right effort will lead to right mindfulness, and mindfulness will lead to right concentration, or right composure, and it will lead to right knowledge, and finally to right liberation. You have heard of the noble eightfold path, but you may not have heard of this Ten types of rightness. This is called the ten type of rightness because they all have the word right at the beginning. Only an Arahant would have all of these ten because we are talking about liberation. It means full liberation of an Arahant. And right knowledge here is complete knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. Liberation is the right liberation of an Arahant. When this happens, then your right view is updated. <coughs> because previously, before you got this 10 types of rightness the right view was mostly intellectual and even for a Sotapan and for a Sakadagami and for an Anagami it is not complete because the experiential aspect of understanding the three characteristics especially that of Anatta is not yet complete Once one becomes liberated, one gets the right knowledge and becomes liberated, then they will update the right view that was attained in the previous attainments. And now it's a complete sort of right view. However, I think that it's not as simple as that. I think that it's more complex. The development of the normal world path is not a simple linear progression like that. It has a few feedback loops. And here, we start off with right view as information and intelligence, like when you listen to Dhamma talk, you listen to instructions, that is trying to get the right view. Remember we talked about Vipassana, the first step of Vipassana is how to view Sankaras, that is right view. And then, you also need to use your intelligence, how to apply this right view. Not just remain as a view, but how can you apply it in order to verify it. You use your intelligence for that. That is the first aspect of right view. Having this intellectual understanding and acceptance of this right view will then affect your right effort. Because right effort is also connected with right view in the sense that you need to have the right view of what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. Then only can you abandon what is unwholesome and Develop what is wholesome, isn't it? If you don't know what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, how are you going to practice this right view? This right view will influence your right effort. And this right effort also will be informed or helped or assisted by right mindfulness. Three of them, as I mentioned the other day, are the executives of the Noble eightfold Path. You have learned about right view, you have heard about right view, but if you don't remember it, and you don't put in the effort to put in the practice, then the noble eightfold path cannot work. All these three must be there. You need to have right view first, then you have right mindfulness to remember it, and the right effort to put in the practice. With this, will then influence your thought, your speech, your action, and your livelihood. Because of this right view, and your right effort to abandon all those unskillful things, which can be manifested in your thoughts, your speech, your action, and your livelihood. The first three, they will go around, and they will also influence these four. And there's a feedback loop in the sense that it will then reinforce that. We will reinforce the first one, and they will go on like this for a long time, especially for people who are not meditators. But if you're a meditator, then the right mindfulness will lead you to have right composure. And this right composure could then improve your mindfulness and then affect all the other things. Finally, when everything becomes balanced, then there is another thought of right view will arise. And this right view is experiential right view. When you verify the right view that you had intellectually learned and accepted. You verify it through your practice of seeing anicca, dukkha, anatta, and cause and condition through your own personal experience, through the six senses, through the five aggregates. The second type of right view is insight, it arises spontaneously. I often tell you during the interviews that you shouldn't think too much, you just incline your mind, because some people have a tendency to try to analyze the situations to find out the cause and condition. But if you try to do that, sometimes it's quite useful to do that, especially when you don't have time to compose your mind and allow wisdom to actually arise, then at least you need to have some sort of composure before you can analyze things objectively. Otherwise, if you really have the time, then it's best not to analyze. Just to compose your mind and then pose the question and allow wisdom to tell you the answer. And this sort of right view that comes out of experience will then update your previous right view and then this again will influence everything in these two feedback loops. Finally, what will happen is then you will become weary. You always chant at night. All constructions are impermanent. When one sees us with wisdom, then one wearies of the suffering. Wearies of the suffering of the five aggregates. And this is the path to purification. The whole purpose of looking at all these things, of looking at all these sankharas in terms of vani chadukha anatta, is to bring about this weariness. It's only when you see so much of this Anicca dukkha Anatta, whatever happens in your senses, then you begin to let go and begin to be wearied of them and not be enslaved by them. Otherwise, you'll be so busy chasing after all these sense pleasures, you won't have any opportunity for liberation. The Buddhist path is geared towards this. It is to train you to see the Anicca dukkha Anatta and get bored of the five Rege's and get bored of the sankharas, so that you can go beyond them to be liberated. When you are weary, then you are detached, and when you are detached, then finally you will get right liberation. This sums up what you have been doing here since day one, you have been doing both samatha and vipassana, and by doing open awareness, you were also doing Samatha at the beginning, and then you switched over to Vipassana when you started to incline your mind to verify the three characteristics and cost and conditioning. And also, when you're doing open awareness, you are also doing the 430 Bhattanas, because you're aware of everything that's happening in your senses. Okay, let me end the talk here. Any questions?
1: Tony? Bhante, few questions One is concerning what you just said Usually we practice Samhata before Vipassana But it seems that in the suttas, like in the gradual training We go through mindfulness before we go to jhanas, right? It seems that we are practicing Vipassana Or maybe I equate Vipassana with Satipatthana actually to me, my understanding of the Gradual Training is that we should practice Vipassana before Samatha because Samatha is the jhanas and Vipassana is the Satipatthana.
0: No. If you remember the Gradual Training, the first one is on Yasila. sila. The second is on Sense Restraint. Sense Restraint is not about wisdom. Sense Restraint is just restraining the senses. It's just in the scene, there's only the scene. You don't want to grasp at the signs and features. If you look at how the sense restraint is described by the Buddha, the Buddha says, Having seen an object with the eye, one does not grasp at its signs and features. Otherwise, one could be invaded by evil, unwholesome states of longing and dejection. He didn't say delusion, only longing and dejection, which is only loba and dosa, no moha. The sense restraint is not about wisdom, it's just about restraining your senses. It's just like when you're doing open awareness, the first part of open awareness is free and easy touch and go and that's actually sense restraint and then later only when the mind becomes composed then I ask you to incline your mind to verify the three characteristics in cause and condition and if you look at the gradual training also the Buddha talks about all these paths from the first one is sila second is sense restraint third is moderation and eating fourth is wakefulness and the fifth is sadhisamajjanya mindfulness and clear awareness The next one is after you have done all this, then you look for a secluded place and you abandon the hindrances and then you do the jhanas. Maybe the Sathisabhadjanya that the Buddha talked about in the earlier step, step number five, is not about Sathipatthana. Because there it says, how does a person practice Sathisabhadjanya? It gives activities. When you're walking, you know you're walking and so forth. That is just being clearly aware of what you're doing, but maybe it does not involve vipassana yet. But then again, it's not always in a fixed sequence. As I mentioned yesterday, in the Yoga Nanda Sutta, spoken by Ananda, some people start off with Samatha and then went on to Vipassana, some started to Vipassana and then went to Samatha, and some did Samatha and Vipassana together, and some
1: none of the above, something else. Second question is, do we practice defocused open awareness in order to avoid Sanya to arise?
0: Sanya is always there. It's just to reduce the possibility of grasping at the signs and features. And as I said, you have to look at circumstances. Sometimes you need to practice focused open awareness. Sometimes you practice unfocused or defocused open awareness. If you have nothing to do, I mean you are just doing a formal sitting and you are facing a landscape, that's a good time to do defocused open awareness. Otherwise, if you're looking at a landscape, then you might start to think about how beautiful this is and look at that and look at this.
1: Simple question. I don't understand weariness, what it means. Weariness means bored, getting bored,
0: getting disenchanted and bored with the five aggregates with the six senses.
1: Bhante, just want to ask, the inside here, is there some special definition? Because... Looking at this means that in order for insight to arise, does it mean that you need to get into some jhanic state? Because going by the definition of the right composure... Yeah, in the jhanic state.
0: At least the first jhana. First jhana is not that difficult to get. It's just a seclusion from sense pleasures, and then initial and a sustained application of the mind. And no unwholesome mental states. Anyone else?
2: Bante, could you elaborate the part on going to the object and the object coming back to you? Does it serve as any function? Does the objects are supposed to serve as a function, or is it just a symptoms or sign? I don't understand what you mean by when you are. In concentration, instead of going to the object, the object will come to you. What's the use of this object? Is it essential or is just something that the mind is saying?
0: Use of one object.
2: Instead of you going to the object, the object comes to you. I don't understand what is this object.
0: (laughs) Object means objects. Any of the sense objects. Usually when we start off with open awareness, we would be aware of a sound coming from there or a bird flying over there all sensation in the back all these locations are there but when the mind becomes one when you're able to just stay with the mind then you don't go out anymore the objects come to the mind it's as though the objects come to the mind you're staying in one place and then you see objects coming instead of going out to the objects
2: I mean let's say for example if you focus and suddenly you see faces
0: or it could be Buddha's image are you referring to no, this? No, no, these are all visions. I'm talking yeah. about real sense objects.
2: So, not that yet.
0: <laughs> okay, okay, anyone else? The right effort,
2: the abandoning unskillful states that have arisen. And with the practice, we are to accept, acknowledge what has happened. Can you explain more to what extent we be with whatever has arisen the unwholesome stuff and just watch the defilements versus actively doing something to abandon it
0: well when they say abandon you must understand it does not mean rejection there's a difference you see in the other anchor strategy we have accept all things don't reject don't follow don't ignore when you reject it means that you actively push it away when you don't reject and you don't follow and you don't ignore what you do is you just acknowledge okay this is what has happened and then you abandon by shifting your attention to the five senses because this is based on the principle of the five six one features of the six senses because the mind can only take one object at a time if you are busy with the five senses then the mind has no time to dwell on those unwholesome states That is what is meant by abandon, not active rejection, but changing
1: the object. Bhante, one more question is just how you mentioned about contemplation on externally and internally.
0: There are many interpretations for this. If you read Asma Analayo's book on Sadiputana, you'll see quite a number of interpretations. The way I interpret it is that internal means your own personal experience. For example, You understand cost and conditioning by looking at the subject. You understand how certain thought patterns, certain behavior arise in you due to present circumstances and past conditioning. That is internal. Then you contemplate outside or you observe outside. When you see somebody behaving in a certain way, sometimes you can extrapolate your experience that poor fellow is not his fault because he was conditioned that way. Is contemplating in that way by inference rather than directly seeing that person's cause and conditioning. Not the psychic power of seeing
2: that. Just to confirm, just now the abandoning is just shifting the attention away from the unwholesome towards what's wholesome, such
1: as mindfulness.
0: Towards something which is neutral, like sense objects. But when you're shifting your attention to sense objects, mm-hmm. Although the objects are neutral, the mental state of mindfulness or awareness is wholesome.
2: We are building up the mindfulness, which is wholesome.
0: Yeah. Bhante,
2: regarding the concept of weariness, how can we be sure that it is true weariness and not a form of escapism? Like for example, sometimes if we face with problems in life, we don't want to face the problem. Then maybe we go meditate and okay. not face the problem. <laughs>
0: Weariness comes about by experiential understanding of Anicca Dukkanata in a continuous way. But if you face a situation and you cannot solve it and then you get weary, <laughs> that's not the real weariness. <laughs> that's worldly surrender.
2: Weariness can only come from after we have gotten the real insight.
0: Correct. Okay. It is also another insight. In the suttas, it's often said that. For example, in the Anatta Lakala Sutta, this course on the characteristic of not-self, the Buddha asked the monks to view all the five aggregates, whether past, present, future, near or far, subtle or gross, and so forth, internal, external, to view all the five aggregates as not mine, not me, not myself, according to what has occurred. Then he says, the noble one Who sees this according to what has occurred, then will become wearied. And when he becomes wearied, then he becomes detached. And when he becomes detached, then he is liberated. Then his mind becomes liberated from the defilements. There is a normal sequence of insight. Weariness is one type of insight that comes out of seeing things according to reality.
2: Bante, can you say one more time? I think you said this last year, but I cannot remember. Uh, what's the reason you don't put the RK here? Right knowledge, RK in this chart. In your earlier chart, you have a RK number. It
0: should be here. <laughs> I don't know where it went to. <laughs> it could probably be RV2. Right knowledge is RV2. Right view, experiential <laughs> right view.
1: Bhante, when you say to put your attention to the mind, the center, is it aridjavatu? And do we find it in the sutta? No, nope.
0: center means anywhere you think the mind is.
1: Okay. <laughs> aridjavatu is not found in the no. sutta. I was wondering if learning by heart when we learn chanting is increasing our Sati, right? Yes. yes. But it's not mentioned in Satipatthana, like it's not a way to establish Satipatthana, is it?
0: <laughs> it's not mentioned in the Satipatthana Sutta. As I said, in the Satipatthana Sanyutta, there are no details given what is Kaya Nupasana and all that. This is only found in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is a composite of different extracts. But actually, there is because you need to remember the 31 parts of the body. You have to memorize the 31 parts of the body then you have to visualize it.
1: I understand now how to see cause and condition for my thinking but I don't really see how to see cause and condition for rupa and vinyana.
0: Rupa is something external. That's why I always ask you to look at the subject more than the object because for rupa it's very difficult to determine the cause and condition. For example, your body. What is the cause and condition for having this body right now? You cannot see. You only know through intellectual understanding. But as I said, whatever happens in your mind, the reactions, the responses, you can see. And you can see all these four aggregates. You can see how the four aggregates arise due to cause and condition. For example, viññana is consciousness. Sometimes you have eye consciousness. It takes predominance. Sometimes it is body consciousness. Sometimes it is ear consciousness. And it is due to the the sense experience because the sense objects impinge on the sense base and that's why sense consciousness arises. You can see that there's a cause and conditioning.
1: It's because of one object, for example, an insect is singing quite loudly. My consciousness goes there so I can see anatta there because it's this cause.
0: And then consciousness is so a product of cause and conditioning because of the sound. The sound comes near and then the ear consciousness arises and then the mind is aware of it you can see the mind consciousness that it is aware of the hearing and then because of that then you can see sanya that you recognize that that is a fly or whatever and then there's akhara that arises in intention to do something before you get bitten (laughs) and then the feeling also of displeasure of fear fear is not a feeling but fear is accompanied by displeasure Fear is actually a Sankhara. Just like anger is a Sankhara, Is the fourth aggregate, but then feeling is the second aggregate.
1: Is it useful to think of my body being the consequence of what I ate? Or my parents having sex 7 years ago (laughs) (laughs) It's not me, it's just consequence of all these conditions
0: This is what you call reflection Reflection, it's so good I mean, not to say that you shouldn't do that But I think it's more impactful to see the four aggregates within yourself Because most of the time we associate more with what happens in the mind Although we still associate with the body But you can look at the body also, as you said, by reflection
2: Mate, you mentioned it before, but I have forgotten what is wrong
0: liberation. <laughs> wrong liberation, like I said the other day, I talked about right mindfulness and wrong mindfulness and then ordinary mindfulness. Can you remember? No, leh. <laughs> no mindfulness. That is ordinary mindfulness. Right mindfulness is mindfulness that is connected with the path of liberation. Wrong mindfulness is mindfulness that is connected with a spiritual path that does not lead to right liberation. Right liberation from the Buddhist point of view means that there is a total eradication of all greed, hatred and delusion and there will be no more rebirth. Wrong liberation is you follow a spiritual path with mindfulness, you still need mindfulness in order to remember instructions and how to practice, remind yourself to practice. You follow instructions according to that particular spiritual path, but then it does not lead to true liberation in the sense that you don't cut off all the defilements. And it does not result in escape from rebirth. That is wrong liberation. You think you are liberated, but you are not.
2: The person wouldn't be aware. do not know. Bante, does the awareness and detachment here refers to the abandonment, fading away and cessation mentioned in the
0: suttas. Cessation here refers to liberation itself. Okay. Probably abandonment, what do you call it? Fading away. Fading away. Fading away is detachment. Okay. Where else? No? Okay, let's call it a day.